Exodus. Chapter 32, it's a familiar story. And in showing my age, I'm finding with age my forgetter gets better. I could not find anywhere in my notes that I had preached this message here. I don't know if I have. If I have, I'm sorry. But this is what God placed on my heart for this morning when Pastor asked me. And so God has a purpose in it. If you haven't heard it before, then I guess my notes are more correct than I initially thought. But the setting of Exodus chapter 32 is a great setting. In Exodus chapter 31, Moses has been called up to uh, Mount Sinai, and God has been teaching him. And at the end of chapter 31, you read, and he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So that's what's going on up on the mountain. In, in the context, you understand, that Israel has been set free after 42 decades of slavery. That's 420 years. God had delivered them from the nation of Egypt, and He did it in a very dramatic fashion. And, and that's an exciting story. I mean, the Egyptians were a world power. And they had been plundered by a group of unarmed former slaves with no military training. I mean, they were throwing riches and gold at the Israelites, asking them to please leave their country. And when they got to the Red Sea, you're aware of what happened there. Their army decided to follow, and God took care of that as He opened the Red Sea to let the nation Israel cross through on dry land. And then when the Israeli army or the Egyptian army was in the middle of the Red Sea, he closed it back over and they all drowned. And they were humbled and God got the glory out of that word spread. God continued to lead them by His presence, which was a... a a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And he leads them to the base of Mount Sinai and he calls their leader up because he wants to have a heart-to-heart -heart with Moses and he asks Moses to join him at the top. And, and that's where we find this setting. It's been about, as near as I can figure, about a hundred days since they crossed the Red Sea. A hundred days. How many of you have ever experienced something in your life so spectacular you know you will never, ever forget that event? And maybe it was longer than a hundred days ago, but still you can recall it with a vividness and maybe even emotion involved in it that you know you will take with you to your grave if God allows you to have uh, your, your memory and your faculties to do that. I don't know about you, but I, I think this event would have been so spectacular that even I could have remembered it more than a hundred days. I mean, you're walking through a wall of water on each side, you know, and, and 
you know what I'm like in imagination. Can you imagine a fish coming up to the edge of the water and looking out as people cross by? You know, like in an aquarium when you see the fish there looking at you and looking at him. And I can just imagine some Hebrew boys were poking the, you know, the water, sticking their finger in it as they walked along. I mean, and, and they would still be talking about it. This was a spectacular act of God as he redeemed his people. And now their leader is, is up in the mountain talking to God and they see the rumblings and the lightnings and all of that. And they are down in the camp and they are eagerly waiting Moses' return. And so we saw in the end of chapter 31 what was happening up on the mountain. Chapter 32 reveals to us what was happening down in the camp. And if you have your Bibles in, in Exodus chapter 32, we're going to look at uh, some verses there, beginning with verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. A hundred days from God's spectacular work, God's redeemed people were behaving in this way. And it's interesting as you as you read some of the phrases, you find out what they wanted. It's interesting. You read there, they wanted a God who would go before them. And we need to understand that this phrase is not about the location of the God with respect to Israel. They just weren't wanting something to lead the parade like a sign. If you've been to parades and there's a band, there's usually a couple of folks leading the band, holding a sign, telling you which band it is, or or which float it is. That's not the idea here. The idea, the phrase to go before means they were wanting a God to lead them, to guide them, to direct them, and to protect them. What they were asking for is we want something now to replace the God who has done everything He's done in the last 100 days. That, that's what the phrase means and indicates. They were asking Aaron to provide something that would take the place in their lives that only God was meant to occupy. And as I read that, I don't know if you are blown away, but I, I'm just saying, wait a minute, folks, it's only been a hundred days since you saw the Red Sea part and you walked through on dry land. You didn't even have to slosh through mud. Minor detail that God took care of. 
And that you saw the Egyptian army follow, you saw it close back up of nobody's doing but God and drowned all of the Egyptian army a hundred days ago and you are now already wanting something to replace that God. And what about Aaron? Second in command, Moses' right-hand man, Moses' mouthpiece. What was going through his mind when the people came and made their request? We need a God. I would like to think that if I would have been there and I said, what do you mean we need a God? Remember what happened a hundred days ago? We have a God. But they came to him and they asked for him to provide a God. And I wonder what was going through his mind when he was forming that gold lump into a worshipful form which he made in the form of a calf. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty bad first couple of verses, but it goes downhill from there. Picked it back up in verse 5. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. There's the tide back to 1 Corinthians. So that's what the people did. Not only did they create this God, but now they decided to take Worship that they had been instructed in how to do and apply to the true creator God of the universe and apply it to this golden calf that they had made. We're going to worship this calf just like we were going to worship God. And so the nation gathers around and they begin to do that and, and they're celebrating and they're chanting and, and they're crying out, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. And they were offering sacrifices to their handmade God. Does that, does that just kind of blow you away? Wait a minute, you made this thing. And now you're offering sacrifices to it? After what happened? A hundred days earlier? By the true and living God as he parted. Where was, where was that calf then? It was hanging on people's ears and on their fingers. That's where God's people were. Verse 7. We shift scenes back up to the top of the mountain, God and Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way. I like that. It's also convicting. 
They have turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Sounds justified to me. After what he had done, hundred days earlier, and leading them out of Egypt, getting them by the Red Sea, taking care of the Egyptian army, having them respond in this way to worship another god. But Moses implored the Lord, his his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hard against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, the tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back, they were written the tablets of the work, of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua, and I remember, he went halfway up the mountain with Moses. So now he's hearing what's going on down in the camp. When Moses heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory, but the sound of the cry of defeat or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them on the foot of the mountain. He took the calf they had made and burned it with fire and ground it with powder to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink of it. That's a sad situation. And as you read on, you see Moses confronts Aaron in verse 21. Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that have brought such a great sin upon them? I mean, Moses is assuming that they must have threatened Aaron some way. I mean, in his mind, he probably didn't think Aaron, you know, would have least resisted. And he says, what, what did they do that would cause you to lead them in this way? Listen to Aaron's response, because we're going to learn some lessons from this. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. 
So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. You know, Lord, you know Moses, they, they just started throwing their gold, and it went into the fire, and this calf jumped out. Who knew, you know? And we look at this, and, and we see... You know, a scenario, I don't know, it just seems to be incredible to me. A hundred days after witnessing the redemption of these people, to have them respond in that way. And maybe you're here this morning as I read through this Old Testament story, and you're thinking as I thought one time when I read through this, what? Does this have to do with me? You know, you know, God, I would never do anything like that. To which the Holy Spirit said, we need to talk. You need to listen. Folks, there are some very important lessons here that deal with us today as God's people in our relationship to Him because I believe that this tragic story reveals the condition of the human heart. And it hasn't changed. The first lesson, and if you have your handout, we're going to start filling in a few of the blanks, but... The first lesson is, I think we need to walk away from this, is reminding us that all Scripture is about who we are. From the very first pages of Scripture, we learn that we were created by God in His image, made for His glory. We learn that we rebelled against that. And now we are suffering the consequences of that rebellion. It's passed down every generation, even to us today, because we were born in sin and we were born sinners. And we learn from these early pages in Scripture that the solution for the sin problem is blood. Because remember, Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves with leaves and God says, no, this is sin. It's got to be dealt with with the shedding of blood and an animal was killed. And covering was provided based on that shed blood. We saw that God has a plan for the sinfulness of people. And right now, that ought to tell us, if we take nothing else away from this, that the Bible is a mirror of who we are and how we respond, and the issues that we face. In fact, in the New Testament, in the book of Corinthians, Paul reminds us that it's a mirror. We look into it, and now we see darkly, but then we'll see clearly. But we need to understand that it's a a mirror that helps us see incredibly important things about ourselves. It's about who we are. 
And as we're pointing the finger at the nation Israel and shaking our heads and wondering how they could do it, we need to be reminded that we are no different. A hundred days from from a, a great experience of the blessing and the grace and the mercy of God, our hearts are capable of the same things that the hearts of the Israelites are capable of. We have to always be aware. Which leads us kind of logically into number two. The Israelites were people just like us. I don't know what you, when, when I read the Old Testament, I say, God, there's no way I would have done that. I mean, you would, you know, the cycle of, of being in sin and calling upon God and God redeeming them and then, you know, going back into that cycle of sin. I would say, you know, God, give me one cycle and I would learn and it would never happen again. But I realize that's not true. These Old Testament Israelites are so much like me And if we're honest with yourselves, they're so much like you. And there's lessons to learn, as Todd read earlier, that these were given to us as an example, as something to stand out and remind us and show us, folks, even though we're redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, even though we're part of the church, which is His body, we are no different in our hearts as they were. I mean, when we study Scripture, let's be honest, we can relate to Cain's jealousy. Moses' anger, Achan's greed, David's lust, Absalom's disloyalty, Nebuchadnezzar's pride, and Elijah's depression. We can relate to those because they show us that's what we are. I like what one author said, If you open your Bible with humble hands, you will find yourself on every page. Folks, we need to see ourselves in Exodus chapter 32. These Israelis, these Israelites were people just like you and I. With sinful hearts and sinful tendencies. Number three, a lesson I take away from this that that I want us to think about today is we are always worshiping something. And that is really the center of Scripture. And Exodus 32 makes that painfully obvious. They started out... Worshiping God. Remember back in Egypt, they were calling on God. God, you gotta, you got to redeem us. We're in this slave situation and it's just horrible. And you made all these promises to us and, and, and we need your help. And they're calling on Him and, and we see the response with, you know, as God begins to work and lead them out of Egypt and, and they're out of there. And so they're worshiping God and now they get out here into the wilderness And Moses goes up into the mountain. They think they need something else to worship because in their mind, you know, God's out of the picture. God's man Moses is out of the picture. So what are we going to worship? And the golden calf comes into play. We are always worshiping 
something. If God isn't the central reason for all that I am doing, then something else in creation will be. There will always be a God substitute. Again, I like this statement. There is never a moment, never a word, or action, or reaction that is not somehow shaped by whatever we claim the allegiance of our heart. Why do you say what you say? Why do you think what you think? Why do you do what you do? Because of something your heart is worshiping. It controls our behavior. That's why we can say we're always working. If it's money, if you're being controlled and you worship money, you can look at your life and you can see how everything you do and say is driven in the acquisition and the reliance upon money. If it's relationship, just look, just look at the behavior. You know, I've got to win this person over. I have to please this person. And your whole life then becomes controlled by that pleasing relationship. And we could go on and on and on. There is always a desire that rules us. And if you want to be honest, if you look at all the stories in the Bible, they really are all about worship. What was the rich young ruler worshiping? What about the woman at the well? What about Zacchaeus? What about Nebuchadnezzar? And we can see all of these reveals the heart of people and what was really at the core, what they were really worshiping. And the fall, I like this, the fall is a drama of worship. We're either going to worship God or we're going to worship ourselves. And it's followed by a long string of worship dramas throughout Scripture. What we really worship makes the difference in how we respond to life. Folks, we need to understand that truth right now. Where you're sitting, what you're thinking, there is something that your heart is worshiping. It may be the true and living God, praise the Lord if it is. But it may be something else. But there is something that you are worshiping right now that controls and impacts everything you do. Fourth lesson we take away from this incident in Exodus 32 is we all tend to substitute the physical for the spiritual. One of the courses I had to take at faith was a course of world religions. You ever read a book or done a study on world religions? I would encourage you to do so, not because I want you to adopt one on, but I want you to see the pattern. A lot of them evolve around some physical object or person. The worship of some man or man-made God. Something that we're able to feel and to touch. And I believe that's why Israel turned to a golden calf. They remembered that 
four plus decades in Egypt and how they had gods that they could set on a shelf and that they could handle and touch and who seemed to bless them for that period of time and they wanted something like it. In, in crisis, let's be honest, we like those security blankets. We like to have that silky edge so that we can rub between our fingers and be comforted. One of my children was like that. But we like that, don't we? You know, you get your thumb in your mouth and you get that silky edge. And, oh, yeah. We're no different, folks. We want something that we can hold and we can grasp, something that we can touch. And we can see in the Lord reference this tendency, if you want to jot it down and read it later, in Matthew 6, 19 and 20. We haven't changed. Number five. We all tend to attribute to creation Things that can only come from the Creator. God, as He's worked in the earlier chapters of the book of Exodus, made it very, very clear that they could not have escaped Egypt without His working. I mean, here they are standing on the shore of the Red Sea. They see the dust of the Egyptian army cloud, the big cloud that that army was creating off in the horizon behind them. In front of them is the Red Sea. I don't read about a meeting of gathering all of the engineers of Israel together and determining how they can quickly build a bridge and, and bridge over the Red Sea. I don't read that. I don't read that they begin to break up and have brainstorming ideas on how they could resolve the situation. I don't read that. What I read is they were crying out to God. God, you've got to save us. We have no solution to this. And we see God telling Moses to part the water, and he did. And there was God's solution. A hundred days earlier, that's what they witnessed, and they all, every one of them, all of the million plus that walked through over that dry ground, not having to slosh through the mud in the bottom of the, the, the Red Sea, knew that God had solved the problem. There was no doubt. But yet, now that they needed a God, they wanted to create one out of physical things in the universe. And then worship that. And here they were, a hundred days after God did the work, they were proclaiming that the calf had led them out through the Red Sea. He didn't even exist then.
And we do that in our lives. And when you look back on those times in your life, maybe when you were literally between a rock and a hard place, and God intervened and God did the work, do you see your efforts? Or do you see a gracious, loving, powerful hand of God working on your behalf? Number six. Boy, and I'm going to tell you, this one's convicting. Impatience and idolatry go hand in hand. Impatience and idolatry go hand in hand. Stand in line at Starbucks. There's three people in front of you. You're sitting there. You remember there's one a block away. You go out, get in your car, you drive a block away to the other Starbucks. Because they're going to be quicker there, right? I mean, isn't that us? Put the food in the microwave. Come on, come on. Impatience and idolatry go hand in hand. You see, Moses did not return in the time frame of expectation by the people. I wonder why, can, can you just hear, you know, has anybody seen Moses? Have I heard anything from him? You know, I've seen a lot of stuff going on up there. I bet he's not coming. I bet he's died up there. And, and just started all of this stuff. We, we, God needs to do something today. We, we need to have this right now. And they began to get impatient. They were wanting to operate under their own time frame and not God's. Okay? Any, anybody else done that? And when we do that, that is idolatry. We don't want to call it. We just call it impatience because that's, you know, that's... Not as significant as idolatry. Oh, no, I'm not an idolater. Well, you're not trusting God for his timing. You're taking events into your own hands. Maybe you're compromising biblical principles because, well, in this case, the end will justify the means. You know, I've got to speed things along here. And their impatience led them to idolatry. One of the hardest things for a sinner to do is wait. We hate delayed gratification. You know, we're kind of like, I want patience and I want it now. That's not the way God necessarily works. Number seven, we all tend to blame our idolatry on others. Think about the logic behind the golden calf. The nation of Israel can blame Moses. Well, Moses, you stayed up there too long. We got tired of waiting. We didn't know what happened to you, so we just took things into our own hand and created a golden calf. It's your fault, Moses. If you'd have come back sooner, this would have never happened. Moses is talking to Aaron. What does Aaron say? Oh, well, you know, Moses, it's these people. 
You know what a, a, a unspiritual, stiff-necked people they are. And, and, you know, they just started throwing gold into the fire, and this calf jumped out. It's not my fault. And we read earlier that he crafted the gold. I like that. Right in the same context, we, we already see that he's catching the blame. And I'm sure if you'd have started walking among the nation Israel with a microphone, you would have found all kinds of excuses of why it wasn't their fault that they were now worshiping a golden calf. And we shouldn't be surprised. Remember what happened in the garden? Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. And as one of my college professors used to say, the serpent didn't have a leg left to stand on. We, we always want to blame other people. Well, you don't understand. It's this, it's this church that I'm going to. Nobody there loves me. Or it's my boss. You don't understand my boss at work. You're right. I probably don't, but God does. Or it's this why. This, this husband, this schoolmate, this co-worker. If it weren't for them, I wouldn't be doing this. We need to realize the person to blame for the sin in your life is the one who stares back at you in the mirror in the morning. But our tenant, we, we want to blame it. That's what the nation Israel was doing here. They were pointing the fingers. When we face crisis, it's easy to blame the people or the things or the situations that surround us. When the issue is our heart. Number eight, another very, very convicting one for me. And I really want you to get this one. We all use the things that God has provided to build our golden calves. Did you see that in the story? How did the nation Israel get the gold that they used to make the calf? God provided it. A hundred days earlier when they were leaving Egypt, they were basically paying the Israelites, giving them gold to get rid of them. That was an act of God. And so they had something that they didn't deserve, that they didn't earn, that was given to them, and now they are using the very blessing of God to create a golden calf. Folks, we are no different. The intellectual abilities that God gives us, we sometimes turn those around and use those to think our way out of situations rather than trust God. God gives us the gold of friendship and we use it to crave the acceptance of more than the acceptance of God. He provides us with the goal of marriage and family, but we make marital bliss more important than feeding Him. He gives us the goal of work, but we allow it to control us. He gives us the goal of material ease, but we choose to live 
for ourselves rather than live for God. We do this all the time. And yet we will point the finger at the nation Israel and we'll say, man, that is horrible. They're just like us. Number nine, God is jealous for our worship and will do what it takes to get it. If you read on in this story, you will find that 3,000 people, roughly 3,000 people died over this golden calf incident. There was a consequence. And if nothing else, that ought to remind us that God is serious about our worship. And he's a jealous God. We're told that over and over and over in Scripture. We're to worship him and him alone. Ten commandments. They start at the top, you know. You'll have no other gods before me. I am a jealous God. You will worship me. And he works in our lives to bring us to the point to where we will worship him. And the great lesson from this is that we need to see that God is willing to do drastic things in order to free us from slavery to things that were never meant to rule us. And why does He do it? Because He loves us. And He wants what's best for us. And what's best for us is to worship Him. So here's the hard question this morning as we conclude. What are your golden calves? I think it's fair in light of the scripture we've looked at. What are your golden calves? As we've been working our way through this, maybe one of those points or two God used to just speak to your heart, you know? Yeah, I am using some things that God has provided as something that I'm worshiping instead of Him. I am growing impatient with God's timing of things in my life. And I'm taking things into my own hand. What, am, what has God provided me as a blessing that I am using now as an idol in my life? Are you able to see your calf construction tendencies? Because we all have them. Is your life right now out of place? Because of an idol in your heart that you have built? Are you melting down the gold of your life because you don't know what God is doing and you are tired of waiting? Do you need to run to God's presence Lay your golden calves at His feet 
and confess your idolatry to Him? Do you need to thank Him and celebrate His jealous love for you and the rescue He has provided to you? What are your golden calves? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this very familiar story in the Old Testament that we read, that we're aware of, that in our mind and in our hearts we point the finger at the nation Israel and we ask the question, how could they do this? Father, what we need to see is how that is an illustration and a demonstration of our own hearts. Father, we need to see the idols of our hearts this morning, our golden calves, and we need to deal with them. We need to lay them before you and confess them as idols and sin and trust you. In that portion that we read earlier in 1 Corinthians, you said that you will always make a way that we can go through the things that we face in our life in a manner that pleases and honors and glorifies you, and we're asking for that today. And we pray this in the name of your precious Son, who shed his blood and died on the cross for our idols in our sinful heart. Amen.